Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Thursday, July 20th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. The Senate rejects the Constitution over NATO's Article 5. So the Senate on Wednesday overwhelmingly voted down an amendment to the 2024 National Defense Authorization Act that would declare that NATO's Article 5 does not override congressional war powers. And Article 5 is what outlines mutual defense commitments. So the amendment was introduced by Senator Rand Paul, Republican from Kentucky, and it reads, quote, it is the sense of Congress that Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty does not supersede the constitutional requirements that Congress declare war before the United States engages in war, end quote. So it seems simple enough for something for people that have, you know, vowed to uphold the Constitution. You would think they would approve this. This is something that should be the case. Uh, but no, the amendment failed in a vote of 16 to 83, and it received no support from Democrats, so only Republicans voted in favor. Paul wrote on Twitter after the vote, quote, It should have been an easy vote to affirm the Constitution. To vote against affirming the Constitution actually places doubt in the Constitution, but it was defeated, end quote. The Senate also uh, voted on an amendment introduced by Senator Tim Kaine, Democrat from Virginia, that requires Senate approval for a president to leave NATO in a vote of 65 to 28. So that amendment passed pretty overwhelmingly. This amendment that, you know, they want to vote on leaving NATO, but they don't want to vote on going to war. No, let's just, you know, you know, jump right into a war if a NATO country gets attacked. So this amendment introduced by Tim Kaine, it reads, quote, The president shall not suspend, terminate, denounce, or withdraw the United States from the North Atlantic Treaty, except by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, provided that two-thirds of the senators present concur, end quote. So versions of these amendments were recently introduced as standalone bills. I recently covered the, the bill that you know they want to prevent a future president from joining NATO. That was introduced by a bipartisan group of senators, but it looks like they're going to try to tack it onto the NDAA. And this amendment introduced by Rand Paul, there was another version of that introduced as a bill by several Republicans. Again, that was just a Republican effort. Um, so, but what's interesting, you know, and what's worth pointing out and what Rand Paul pointed out when they first introduced that bill is that, you know, NATO's Article 5, you know, it outlines the commitments that members have to each other if they come under attack. And it requires that they assist them, but military action is not mandated. And furthermore, Article 11 of the NATO Treaty states that the provisions of the treaty are to be carried out in accordance with each country's respective constitutional processes. So you would think, again, that this is a no-brainer amendment that Paul introduced here, and I think it's something good to introduce while we are close, you know, while we're funding this proxy war against Russia, and we know what happened with that uh, missile incident in Poland. It turned out to be a Ukrainian air defense missile, but at first the Ukrainians were saying it was Russia. Uh, U.S. officials speaking to the media said it was Russia. So something like that could happen again. So, you know, 
you would think Congress would want to be very careful about things like this, but no, they're just gung-ho, all in. You know, they call Article 5, they call NATO a sacred commitment, and it seems like it matters much more to them than the Constitution. So when it comes to this Kane Amendment that would prevent a future president from pulling out of NATO, because we know Joe Biden is not going to want to do that, um, the situation with the NDAA right now. So the Senate is, you know, debating amendments to add to their version. And then once they pass their version of the NDAA, then they nego- they're going to negotiate with the House. The House has already passed its final version, which I covered er- earlier this week. And they're both for $886 billion in spending, a record number. Uh, but there might be kind of a bipartisan, uh, partisan, you know, battle when it comes to negotiating these NDAAs, because the House version has these Republican amendments that were introduced, you know, dealing with social issues in the military. But I have a feeling that this Tim Kaine amendment is going to make it through and is going to make it to, you know, the final version and is going to become law when President Biden signs it. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. It's usually the bad amendments that make it through and the good ones that that don't. Um, all right, so the next one here, the Czech Parliament ratifies treaty allowing U.S. troop presence. So on Wednesday, the Czech Parliament ratified a treaty that paves the way for a U.S. military presence on Czech soil as the U.S. is looking to further beef up its military posture in Europe. So this defense cooperation agreement was approved by the lower house of the Czech Parliament in a vote of 115 to 18, and it now heads to the desk of President Petr Pavel, who is expected to sign the document. The Czech government reached an agreement on this agreement, uh, sorry, on this defense cooperation agreement with the US back in May. And the Czech Republic is the 25th NATO member to sign an agreement with Washington that allows a US military presence. So the US is pursuing uh, similar agreements with NATO's newest member, Finland and Sweden, uh, which will formally join the alliance soon once Hungary and Turkey's parliament ratify their membership, and that both countries say they're going to do it, and it's probably going to happen in the fall. But the U.S. is looking to establish military presence there. And now here's another country where the U.S. is going to try to deploy probably a few thousand troops, I would guess, is the Czech Republic. And this agreement that they signed sets a legal framework for the presence of U.S. troops, but any deployment would still need the approval of the Czech government and the parliament. So recently, the commander of the Czech Armed Forces warned that Russia and NATO are currently on course for a direct conflict. Kind of a scary warning to hear from the top general of a NATO country. Uh, General Karel Reka said, quote, We view war between Russia and the North Atlantic Alliance as the worst case scenario, but it is not impossible. It is possible Russia is currently on a course toward a conflict with the alliance, end quote. There's also appears to be major anti-Russian sentiment within the Czech government. President Pavel, if you remember, I covered this last month. He suggested that Russians living in Western countries should be monitored similar to the way people of Japanese descent were monitored in the U.S. during World War II. And we all know what happened there. Uh, Most of them were American citizens of Japanese descent who were rounded up and placed in internment camps. So it seems like he's suggesting something like that to do with ethnic Russians living outside of Russia. Um, So these are the people that, you know, we just signed a military deal with to deploy troops to their uh, soil. All right. 
the next one here, a new $1.3 billion weapons package for Ukraine. So I mentioned yesterday that there this was expected to be announced. And on Wednesday, the Biden administration came out and unveiled this big $1.3 billion weapons package for Ukraine. It includes air defense systems, kamikaze drones, missiles, and other equipment. The package is being provided to Ukraine through the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, the USAI, which allows the U.S. to purchase arms for Ukraine as opposed to sending them from U.S. military stockpiles. The Pentagon said that the, announce, the announcement represents the beginning of the contract period. So according to the Pentagon, the full package includes four national advanced surface-to-air missile systems. Those are the NASM's air defense systems, 152-millimeter artillery rounds, mine-clearing equipment, anti-tank tow missiles, Phoenix Ghost and Switchblade drones, those are small kamikaze drones, precision aerial munitions, counter UAS and electronic warfare detection equipment, 150 fuel trucks, 150 tactical vehicles, 50 tactical vehicles to recover equipment, port and harbor security equipment, tactical secure communication systems, and support for training, maintenance, and sustainment activities. So weapons provided under the USAI could take months or years to be delivered. The primary way that the U.S. has been arming Ukraine is through the Presidential Drawdown Authority, which allows President Biden to send equipment directly from military stockpiles. Um, so this, you know, and this comes as the, we have the U.S. and NATO officials warning that they're running out of weapons, they're running out of ammunition to send Ukraine. So we might see the, the U.S. announce more of these, that they're buying these weapons for Ukraine, which, again, uh, will take much longer to get there than just shipping them. All right, uh, the next one here, Russia warns ships against heading to Ukraine. So Russia warned on Wednesday that starting on July 20th, which is Thursday, it would consider all ships in the Black Sea heading to Ukrainian ports as carrying military cargo now that the grain deal has been terminated. So the implication there is that they could be potential targets. The Russian Defense Ministry said, quote, given that the Black Sea initiative has come to an end and the maritime humanitarian corridor has been terminated, all ships going across the Black Sea to Ukrainian ports will be considered potential carriers of military purpose cargoes starting from 12 a.m. Moscow time on July 20th, end quote. So according to TASS, the ministry said that it would consider the flag states of ships traveling to Ukraine as a party to the conflict. So Zelensky has said that the export of Ukrainian grain through the Black Sea could continue without Russia's participation in the deal. But I would bet that this Russian warning will likely scare shipping companies away. And Russia also announced on Wednesday that it launched a second day of strikes against the Ukrainian Black Sea port city of Odessa. Russia said the missile and drone strikes hit military targets and fuel infrastructure while Ukrainian officials said the Russian bombardment hit grain infrastructure. Uh, Russia ramped up strikes after the Ukrainian attack on the Crimean Bridge, which happened on Monday. So Zelensky said, quote, Russian terrorists deliberately targeted the grain deal infrastructure, and every Russian missile is a blow not only to Ukraine, but to everyone in the world who wants a normal and safe life, end quote. And we know that Russia is saying they'll rejoin the grain initiative if more obstacles are lifted uh, to make it easier for them to export fertilizer and you know agricultural goods. I know one of their demands is to get the Russian Agricultural Bank that deals with these transactions 
back on the SWIFT system. It was kicked off the SWIFT system by the U.S. as part of the sanctions. The SWIFT is the you know international financial financial messaging system. So uh, that's one of their demands. Um, so we'll see how that all plays out. Uh, all right, the next one here: fire at a military base in Crimea forces over two thousand to evacuate. So according to local authorities in Crimea, a fire at a military facility forced them to evacuate over 2,000 people in nearby villages. So this is Crimea's governor. He said, quote, the temporary evacuation of residents of four localities adjacent to the military site in the Kirovsky district is planned. That's more than 2,000 people, end quote. So no casualties were reported in the fire, which local officials said set an ammunition depot ablaze, causing multiple explosions. The Crimean governor said later in the day that the situation would return to normal within one day. So the cause of the explosion is not clear. The incident comes a day after Russia said that it downed a series of Ukrainian drones that were trying to target Crimea. Uh, Putin said that whatever the cause of the fire was, it needed to be dealt with. Media reports said earlier in the day that the head of the Ukrainian military intelligence, Kirillo Budinov, took credit for the fire, but later Ukrainian officials said that the statement was fake. It was attributed to his Telegram channel, and they said, no, that's that was fake news. Um, and they're saying that they have not claimed responsibility for the attack, and Ukrainian officials typically don't publicly take credit for attacks in Crimea or other Russian territory. They usually very strongly hint that they were involved, and then you know Ukrainian officials speaking, you know, will tell the media that they were. They just don't take official credit for it. So this incident also came after the attack on the Crimean Bridge. Um, all right, the next one here: stolen Iranian oil is stuck off the coast of Texas. So U.S. federal prosecutors are struggling to sell off a shipment of stolen Iranian oil being carried by a Greek tanker off the coast of Texas. The U.S. Justice Department seized the Greek tanker Suez Rajan in April under the pretext of sanctions enforcement and forced the ship to head for Texas instead of China. The Suez Rajan is carrying 800,000 barrels of stolen oil and is currently off the coast of Galveston. So according to the Wall Street Journal, the U.S. cannot sell the oil because the companies that would unload the cargo are worried about Iranian retaliation in the Persian Gulf. So a Houston-based energy executive told the Wall Street Journal, quote, companies with any exposure whatsoever in the Persian Gulf are literally afraid to do it, end quote. So the executive said that several companies contacted about the oil declined to unload the cargo. After the U.S. stole the Iranian oil shipment, Iran seized two tankers in the Persian Gulf, which was likely uh, retaliation. Since then, the U.S. has announced several measures to increase its military presence in the region to prevent more Iranian seizures in the Persian Gulf. And, you know, they it provoked them in the first place. This is just such an encapsulation of U.S. foreign policy. You know, you cause a problem and then you, you send more military assets to you know, in the name of fixing the problem. Um, and I know, you know, they said they were increasing patrols in the Persian Gulf, and they just recently said they were sending F-16s to the Middle East to prevent Iran from seizing tankers. Um, maybe they should just stop, you know, stealing Iranian oil. That might help. Lift sanctions, you know, just cool tensions off. But no, that's not going to that's not going to happen, of course. 
and the U.S. has a history of seizing tankers and stealing Iranian cargo. In 2021, the Biden administration sold off 2 million barrels of Iranian oil taken from a tanker that was seized off the coast of the UAE. And during the Trump administration, the U.S. seized ships carrying Iranian gas bound for Venezuela and discharged some of the cargo in New York. So usually the way the U.S. seizes ships is that they threaten the shipping company or, say, the insurance companies enough to get them to agree to sail the ship somewhere else. Um, sometimes, I mean, I know the British before have, you know, sent uh, commanders to commandos to seize ships, to seize Iranian ships, um, similar to how Iran does it sometimes in the Persian Gulf. Um, but, but the U.S., it's usually the Justice Department threatening, you know, the companies with sanctions and penalties and all sorts of things to get them to comply. All right, the next one here, U.S. and Russian aircraft in encounters over Syria. So this is an article from Kyle Anzalone over at the Libertarian Institute. American Russian military aircraft increasingly in dangerous situations over Syria. So Washington and Moscow are accusing each other of dangerous and unprofessional military activity in Syria. The Kremlin has issued a series of complaints in the past week that American military aircraft were operating in areas used by civilian airliners. Oleg Gurinov, the deputy chief of the Russian Center for Reconciliation on the Opposing Parties, says the American warplanes create a dangerous situation for civilian aircraft. Additionally, Moscow says that American forces stationed at the Al-Tamf garrison, a U.S. military base on the Iraq-Syria border, have used air defenses further endangering civilian planes. Gurinov said, quote, Moreover, the coalition's forces carried out exercises involving the use of air defense systems in the Al-Tamf area, end quote. Um, so they're saying, you know, this is all putting civilian aircraft in danger. And on Tuesday, Air Force, U.S. Air Force Lieutenant General Alexis Grinkiewicz. Oh, no, sorry. Wait, is he? Sorry, I just got to double check this, make sure that this is the uh, American uh, general here. Yes, it is. It's the U.S. Air Force. Um, so what he's claiming is that a Russian fighter jet created an unsafe situation for American spy planes, for an American spy plane. He reported the incident occurred on Saturday when a U.S. MC-12 conducted operations in support of the coalition's defeat ISIS mission, was closely approached by a Russian Su-35 against established norms and protocols, end quote. He described the Russian fighter jet's actions as creating the dangerous situation for the Americans on board the spy plane. The U.S. plane was forced to fly through its wake turbulence, and this is a you know, manned spy plane, not a drone, because there's been other encounters with drones and this is you know kind of concerning that we keep hearing about this you know this is for a few weeks now they've been trading accusations because the u.s presence in syria is always a potential tripwire for a conflict with russia and now that tensions have become so much higher between the two countries you know some something could really happen over there um and you know kyle makes the point that the u.s you know Russia is an ally of the Syrian government, and the U.S. is occupying uh, a good chunk of eastern Syria against, you know, the government's wishes. You know, so much for sovereignty. The U.S. doesn't care about sovereignty if it, you know, uh, is in their interest to violate a country's sovereignty. So that is a big difference between the two uh, military presences in the country. 
All right, the last one here, the, the House votes to say that Israel is not an apartheid state. So this is from Mondo Weiss, and it's titled, Vast Majority of House Democrats Back GOP Resolution Saying Israel is Not an Apartheid State. So on Tuesday, the House of Representatives overwhelmingly passed a resolution declaring that Israel is not a racist or apartheid state. The final vote was 412 to 9, with one present vote. So the resolution was a GOP effort introduced um, by Republicans. It was developed as a rebuke to comments made by Representative Pramila Jayapal. She's a Democrat from Washington. I believe she's the head of the Progressive Caucus. Um, She called Israel a racist state while she was addressing Palestinian activists or Palestine activists. And she has since walked those comments back and claims that she was merely referring to Israel's current right-wing government and not the country overall. She put out a big statement apologizing, just like she did when they issued that letter calling for President Biden to, uh, you know, think about diplomacy with Russia. So the nine Democrats that voted against the resolution were Rashida Tlaib, uh, AOC, Ilhan Omar, Jamal Bowman, Summer Lee, Cori Bush, Ayanna Presley, Andre Carson, uh, Delia Ramirez, and Belly McCollum. I wish there were some Republicans in there, but they all uh, voted for it. Um, So this was so, yeah, again, this is a reaction to what Jayapal said. And it also came as Isaac Herzog, the Israeli president, was visiting the U.S. and Biden speaking with um, Netanyahu. You know, it just goes to show that it's still the vast, vast majority of Congress is all in on supporting Israel. It doesn't matter that they just had that big raid in Janine, that they've killed over 200 Palestinians this year, that, you know, the judicial overhaul thing, you know, none of that matters. Let's keep giving them that $3.8 billion in military aid each year. Um, so that's it for the news for today. Go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Ron Paul. Biden is calling up military reserves. Are your kids next? One from Michael Clare, the military dangers of AI are not hallucinations. One from Eves Engler, how would Canadians perceive Russian troops on their border? One from John McAvoy, BP's financing of Colombia's murderous military that's over at Declassified UK. And our spotlight is from Ted Galen Carpenter at the Future Freedom Foundation, Uncle Sam War Criminal. So go check all that out, please, and check out our blog. We also have stuff in there. Um, that's it for me for today. Help us out at antiwar.com slash donate if you can. Another big way to help is to subscribe to this show on YouTube or wherever you want to watch the video and share it with your friends and comment. I appreciate all the fe- the you know all the comments and interaction. We've been getting quite a bit lately. Um, but yeah, that's it. I will be back tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening.